Welcome to Truthfinder, where we seek crucial answers to critical questions about belief. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Elijah Sadafel. I'd like to welcome you to Truthfinder and thank you for joining me. I will be the host of the podcast, and as the introduction explained, what I'm going to set out to do is to search and seek out for clarity and meaningful answers when it comes to critical questions about belief. So a little about me. I've been a medical doctor for about 10 years, but my true passion is seeking and finding out what is true, which is why I began branching out into books, podcasts, and a bunch of other online projects for the last several years. I'm a lifetime member of Mensa, and I am the INTJ personality type, which of all the personality types is the least likely to believe in any type of supernatural entity. This helps to shed light on the fact that some famous INTJs of history have been some of the most influential atheists of all time. Examples include Stephen Hawking, Christopher Hitchens, and Ayn Rand. I said that not to make myself sound important. What it is meant to do is to point to the fact that I never approached belief or any type of strongly held conviction as something felt socially adopted or emotional. I've always tended to approach it strategically in a very logical and rational fashion and subject whatever it is I'm thinking about to intense scrutiny and tests of endurance. In the end, whatever comes out on top is a truthful idea not only worth having, but keeping close to your chest. So, over the next several weeks to months, in what I anticipate will be about 10 podcast episodes, every episode is going to tackle one critical question about belief. My intent is to get people thinking about what it is they think they believe so that strong, mature, vetted beliefs may triumph and people will feel confident about and be able to intelligently articulate exactly what it is that they believe and why. So let's get started with this week's episode, How Do We Know What's Really True? Now before we even dive in, a legitimate objection is this. Why should you even bother search for truth, whatever that may be? After all, as many people can argue, why consider the question of ultimate truth, whether that means belief, non-belief, or something in between, when there are so many interesting and urgent things to deal with in everyday life. A person could, in theory, live a perfectly content existence, never wrestling with the questions at hand. Well, one of the things that has always resonated with me is a statement made by the astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson on the podcast Radiolab many years ago. I can still remember driving through Westchester County to a night shift in the ER when his words, for whatever reason, had an immediate and piercing effect on me. I'll paraphrase slightly, but when asked how significant humans are in the context of the universe, Mr. Tyson said, we are specks upon a speck upon a speck. So indeed, our speckedness serves as a humbling frame of reference to our position in the majesty of the cosmos. As it pertains to the truth, I first admit that I am a speck and will never be able to fully grasp everything in the universe. But not only are we specks in physical space, but we are also specks in time. That is, we may live for 80 years or so, but in the context of eternity, our brief life is but a speck on the radar of time. Hence, as it pertains to the truth, our present is significant, but eternity matters so much more simply because there is so much more of it. 
it. Finally, any person with a pulse can absolutely, irrefutably be 100% certain about a concrete fact. And that fact is Valar Margulis. And for those who do not speak High Valyrian or watch Game of Thrones, that phrase translates as, all men must die. Death is not only the great equalizer, but is the inescapable endpoint of all life. As it pertains to the truth, my search therefore turns not necessarily to what I'm doing now, but as to what will happen later. True, nothing may happen, but I cannot simply brush the great equalizer away with a casual shrug of the shoulders considering eternity is at stake. Accordingly, when I contemplate all of these things, speckedness, death, and eternity, I begin to wonder what is really true and how that imputes meaning, purpose, and significance to everyday life. At the end of the day, even if I am just a bag of DNA, the human side of me yearns to know and understand, and an existence in which I deny my humanity, in my opinion, isn't a very pleasant experience. So how do we begin to search for what is really true? The answer is simple, you have to use your senses. In The Magic of Reality, Richard Dawkins puts forth a systematic formula on how we can know if something is real and therefore true. He explains that the most basic tools we have are our five senses. We know that a rock is real by looking at it and touching it, and we know that the warm apple pie is real by smelling it and tasting it. For more complex things, however, we have to rely on tools that augment our senses. For example, we know bacteria are real by using a microscope, and we know distant galaxies are real using telescopes. In some cases, we may not be able to determine what is real using our senses directly. In this case, we build models which are based upon what we think may be happening. This model is either a real-life model or a mathematical computer simulation, and we can test this model based on what we guess or imagine might be real. If the model predicts what happens correctly, then our confidence grows that the model reflects reality. If the model does not accurately predict, then it's back to the drawing board. Of course, models can always be redefined based on new information. As Dawkins makes clear, truth is an objective, rational system. It is not an encounter or a personal experience. Now, is our perception of reality the ultimate barometer of what's really true? Of course not, because these models make no claim on ultimate truth. They do claim to be vehicles in the pursuit of ultimate truth. So, as Dawkins writes, if something were to happen that went against our current understanding of reality, scientists would see that as a challenge to our present model, requiring us to abandon or at least change it. It is through such adjustments and subsequent testing that we approach closer and closer to what is true. So keeping this framework in mind, reasonably speaking then, even those things that we regard as hard facts are open to readjustment. When it comes to the truth then, there are things that are known and can be explained, there are things that are known and cannot be explained, and there are things that are not known and obviously cannot be explained. The point to make here is that even in our quest for ultimate truth, our truth-finding formula is neither perfect nor infallible. This powerful realization not only brings us back to the idea that I am a speck, but it also tempers the bravado we have whenever we claim to know something that is absolutely true. And look at how this striking point applies to everyday life. Because just recently I was in a conversation with an acquaintance, and I was curious as to why they believed a particular thing was true. And they told me, and this is verbatim, what I consider true is not a belief, it's a fact. 
It is a fact and will remain a fact whether a person believes in it or not. This statement has many problems. The first is that it's an assertion, not a proof. The second is that, as we've already learned, the system in which we ascertain what is true is not ultimate, nor is it final. The third problem with this assertion is that it is quite unscientific. A person who declares this is an end-all, be-all fact disallows said facts from being reevaluated or reinterpreted. It actually shuns new information and rejects reasonable skepticism, doubt, and critical questions. If a person held this statement too close to their chest, the world would still hold true that the earth is flat and held up in place by Atlas. So the logical next question that follows is, can we even know the truth? And the answer is, of course we can. And the statement, we can't really know the truth, is based on an unproven assumption. So saying something like, we can't ever know, establishes bias as a starting point. Hence, just as scientific reasoning informs us, if there is a question that is perplexing, we begin asking serious questions and engage in debates. So as I said before, Truthfinder searches for crucial answers to critical questions about belief. And when it comes to belief or the faith in someone or something that is supernatural, one of the thought leaders that has persuaded my thinking is Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant famously wrote that if a supernatural being exists, whomever that being is, it exists in a realm that is beyond our realm. A figurative wall exists that separates the physical world from the metaphysical one. So, we cannot see, feel, taste, or touch that being, and a rational inquiry for truth is impossible. After all, how could we know of such a being that is beyond sense perception? Isn't the framework for knowing what is true based on our senses? Well, if Kant has taught me anything, it is that we ought not to be afraid to use our intellectual prowess. So certainly, the statement we can't know is not true because Immanuel Kant said so. The reasonable, objective, rational inquiry then becomes if a god exists. Is there any empirical proof or evidence of that being's existence? Can we either prove or disprove a link between the physical and the metaphysical realm? Can we either prove or disprove a figurative wall that separates these two realms? Can reason alone lead us either to the non-existence or the existence of a metaphysical being? My point here isn't to answer these questions, but to illuminate the rational approach to truth-finding that begins with these questions without assumption of an answer. Is the truth always objective? Well, the truth always is objective, but the way in which we arrive at what is true is always very subjective. In the famous essay, The Ethics of Belief by the mathematician W.K. Clifford, he wrote that it is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything on insufficient evidence. In the same line of thought, Carl Sagan once said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Both of these statements are supported by the very reasonable principle that in order to determine what is true, we need evidence. This principle brings much clarity and significance as it applies to the material world. Yet I believe this principle when applied to all of human existence sets a bar of empirical proof so high that it makes life unprovable. Allow me to explain. If human beings needed an argument so strong that no reasonable person could reject it, they may find themselves holding on to a truth claim that is impossible to defend. Take, for example, justice and love. Certainly, when I think in my own mind, logic and sense experience, respectively, inform me that these things are both true. 
Yet how would I prove the truth of justice to you? How would I quantify what love is to someone I don't know? How would they, beyond the shadow of a doubt, prove to me what justice and love are? What happens when we disagree on what justice, for example, is a death penalty just, and love, for example, is it selfless, really are using logic and our own empirical evidence. In fact, following Clifford's and Sagan's advice, to even make the absolute claim that anyone cannot believe something without irrefutable proof is itself a statement that has to be proven. And how would you prove that? There are simply some aspects of our human existence, like our subconscious, that remain mysterious and cannot be neatly mapped onto reality and effectively measured. With this is the honest realization that no person is completely objective and they always make choices and weigh evidence with some form of bias that persuades their logic. Indeed, in some cases, this bias is indeed mysterious. Let's test this hypothesis. Barack Obama. Now, I will make the presumption that no matter who you are or where you are, that you have some type of opinion or or perceived truth about Mr. Obama, even though many of the facts are the same. My point is that you are in no way neutral or genuinely indifferent, and what you regard as true has been shaped by experiences, other beliefs, and how you are currently living your life. The take-home point is that the truth is objective, but unless you are a robot, people cannot be totally objective. So does this mean that the truth is relative? The answer is no, because ultimate truth is not conditioned by a person's perception of it because truth is independent of personal meaning. Now this is a proposition, so allow me to elaborate. The first way to think about the relativity of truth is to consider that truth is meaningful regardless of whether or not a person assigns positive or negative value to a truth claim. For example, patients come into my office all the time and I often tell them that their blood pressure is high. So for example, the statement that John has high blood pressure is a truth claim. Now I, as the treating physician, assign positive value to that truth claim. So I say, yes, John, your high blood pressure is real and it exists. A patient who is stubborn and skeptical may assign negative value to the same truth claim and therefore will say, no, I do not have hypertension and the number 170 over 100 is not really real. Or John may similarly claim that high blood pressure is irrelevant to his life. In this scenario, a truth claim exists and to different people, that truth is relative to them based upon how they receive and interpret information. But this relativity in perception will never change the fact that the truth is still relevant and very meaningful to both myself and John. So to emphasize, ascriptions of positive or negative value to truth has no bearing on the truth's meaningfulness. In our example, the presence of high blood pressure can have detrimental long-term consequences on the heart, like a heart attack, on the brain, a stroke, and the kidneys, renal failure. The truth claim is therefore meaningful to me as I now must manage the patient's long-term problem. The truth claim is also very meaningful to John even if he rejects the truth of the claim. Many people often fall into the trap of faulty logic by thinking something can only be true if they ascribe positive value. This is simply not the case. The second and simpler way I have been persuaded to think about the relativity of truth is a question posed by Timothy Keller. He asks, if you insist that no one can determine which beliefs are right or wrong, 
why should we believe what you are saying? This is a very valid question because if a truth relativist takes their support of relativism too far, even they are not exempt from being relative, which quickly dismantles their entire argument. So when people say things like, there is nothing that can be universally true, what they are tacitly saying is, I'm going to make an absolute statement exempt from relativity, but everything else is still relative. The fallacy is evident. Granted, relative truth does point us toward the very real phenomenon that people are the products of their environment. One of the most well-known applications of this principle applies to the area of religious belief, a realm in which people regard things as ultimately true. The reality is, when the Pew Research Center projected the growth of world religions to the year 2050, very few individuals will have switched into a belief system. In fact, this applies to less than 1% of the world's total estimated 9.3 billion people. But guess what? This social conditioning extends into what people believe is true in general. Take, for example, politics. There is a strong correlation with living in the Northeast and on the West Coast with voting Democratic. White evangelicals also tend to lean Republican, and if you are Asian, there is a preference for voting Democrat. Here, the voters vote for who they think best aligns with what they believe is true. If you are born in Boston, chances are you'll be a Red Sox fan and not a Yankees fan. Here, the fans follow who they believe are the true winners. What do these realities tell us? That what we believe is true in general is largely influenced by social conditioning, and this therefore makes evaluating competing truth claims exceedingly more difficult. So yes, perceptions of the truth are socially relative, but that does not mean all truth is relative. At the very least, this information persuades us to recognize that because our truth-finding system is unreliable, we have to have a systematic way of scrutinizing what we believe in order to ascertain what is really true. This brings me to my next point that what's really true has to be exclusive. In order for the truth to be the truth, it has to be exclusive or else it can't be truth. If the sky is blue, this is an exclusive truth claim, and by definition, if the sky is blue, it cannot be red, black, or pink. Going back to W.K. Clifford, he also wrote that it is wrong always everywhere and for anyone to ignore evidence that is relevant to his beliefs or to dismiss relevant evidence in a facile way. This challenges everyone at the very least to consider evidence both for and against what he or she considers to be true. To weigh evidence that is only inclusive of a person's belief diminishes the value of what they consider to be true and dismisses relevant evidence in a naive way. Certainly, in 21st century America, Inclusiveness is a popular buzzword that presumably suggests being progressive, but when it comes to the truth, you will inevitably reach a point where the truth is not inclusive at all and must exclude non-truth. In fact, if a person were to attempt to explain away exclusive truth by some means, for example, as arrogant, elitist, or personal preference, they will inevitably find themselves in an untenable position. Total ideological inclusion is never possible. However, this does not not promote narrow-mindedness and oppression. Why? Because exclusive truth is perfectly compatible with human inclusion. Indeed, there are some people who will regard the truth as offensive, but truth by necessity is correcting of thinking. The next question is, does an absolute truth crush freedom? As the classic argument goes, absolute truth is something to be shunned for two reasons. 
One, it oppresses people who do not conform to the truth. And two, ultimate truth is the enemy of freedom. It crushes individual liberty and inhibits a person from doing what is true in their own eyes. This sentiment has been expressed by Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy when he famously said in 1992 ruling that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. In the West, there is a tendency to distrust anyone who makes an ultimate truth claim. Why? Because there is an assumption that many truth claims are hidden attempts to control and oppress. Certainly, some truth claims will indeed be power plays, but not all claims will end up being actual truth. And when it comes to doubt and skepticism, seeing through all truth claims puts you in a position where you can't really see anything. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, to see through all things is the same as not to see. That is, if you open a dirty window to see the street more clearly, then you have a better picture of the world. If, however, you open a window and then claim you can now see through the street, the bedrock, and the earth beneath it, then in actuality, you can't see anything at all. In essence, the incessant revolt against truth is an assault on reality and an ethical denunciation of what reasonable human beings can think in their own minds. Freedom means reasonably seeing through something in order to see the truth and then being empowered to live it. So the final question is this, how do we figure out what is really true? The answer is by weighing the facts and determining what is reasonable. The fact is we live in a world full of fallible human beings. These human beings often frequently cannot be reduced to logic, cannot be shrunk into a formula, and often do things that do not make any logical sense. With this honest perspective in mind, it is clear that no matter how airtight of a truth a person claims to present, there is no argument that will be totally convincing for everyone. And if a person did think their argument was 100% persuasive, this operates with the assumption that their particular argument is more reasonable. So what do we have left? What we have left is what the philosopher Karl Popper called critical rationalism. Critical rationalism says that truth is an endless quest with a continual reevaluation based on new evidence and new sense experiences. Total knowledge with complete answers is not possible, but workable knowledge with workable answers is possible. Critical rationalism assumes that indeed, there are going to be some arguments that an overwhelming majority of people find reasonable, cognizant that no argument will be convincing to everyone. It says that indeed, there are some beliefs that are based on truth that is more reasonable than others, but ultimately, a logical argument can be raised against any system of belief based on truth claims. How does this help us to figure out what a person believes is really true? It informs us that realistically speaking, everyone can scrutinize their beliefs by evaluating their underlying truth claims, but to insist upon irrefutable proof is not only unfair, but impractical. Modern science doesn't even operate under the premise of irrefutable proof, and the model of reality testing discussed validates this. Even Darwinism, the bedroom rock of evolutionary biology and the explanatory theory for life less a creator is not considered a proven fact, but rather is regarded as something open to being changed. And you don't have to take my word for it. As Richard Dawkins writes, Darwin may be triumphant at the end of the 20th century, but we must acknowledge the possibility that new facts may come to light, which will force our successors of the 21st century to abandon Darwinism 
or modify it beyond recognition. So where do we go from here? If we begin with the truth as a question, we can reach some intelligent answers, not answers that are irrefutable and beyond the shadow of a doubt, but sensible answers that weigh evidence just as in the courtroom. This way, people can be realistic and not have absolute certainty, but be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt and with plausible certainty as in a court of law. In the end, there is a very big difference between just knowing all the facts about what is true and knowing enough to be reasonable. Just like loving spouses or dear friends, we may not be able to master everything about them, but that doesn't mean you can't know them well enough to have clarity, meaningful answers, and the fuel for a lifetime relationship. So that will be all for episode one. I hope you will join me in my quest and in my search for truth, for clarity and meaningful answers. Please come back for episode two. Until then, everyone take care. See you next time. Join me next time for Truthfinder Episode 2. We'll search for an answer to the question, when it comes to the truth, what are the consequences of ideas?